Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right, everybody, welcome back. We have returned. This is the podcast where TLDR does not apply in the study of history as a way of life. We are going to talk about some real history again today, ladies and gentlemen. And today we're going to venture off into something that I talked about just briefly before, and I'm going to provide to you some information to further expand that discussion. You know, the world is often a, uh, a very dark and dangerous place. And today we are going to descend into the darkness. Not a very happy subject, I'm sure. Somebody might ask me the question, Roman, for Pete's sake, why do you want to descend into the darkness? What's the purpose of this? You want to make everybody feel bad? No. It's just, you know, sometimes there is a learning that can only be done when you descend into the darkness. It's uh, impossible to learn everything that you need to learn in life by staying happy all the time and um, talking about happy things all the time and living the happy life all the time. That's not reality. That's not the real world. That's what we like to call fantasy land. That's the Disney World American life that some people enjoy living, but it's not real for most of the world throughout most of time. That is to say, you know, mankind's existence for at least the last 10,000 years or more. And we don't do our young people in this country, or the world for that matter, for those of you overseas, and for those of you who listen to this podcast in Europe, this is going to be a good episode to listen to, I think. It's going to be American-centric on the one hand, but it's also going to talk about international issues that affect you and honestly affect the entire world. Now, at some point in this podcast, especially early on, you'll know by the end of this podcast how this ties into the Founding Fathers. But because somebody is going to have a question mark go screaming through their head at some point in the next 10 to 15 minutes, I am going to front load that discussion and talk to you about why it is that this topic is related to the Founding Fathers. And, you know, before I get to that, I'll tell you what the topic is going to be. I mentioned it on the previous episode. It's going to tie into Veterans Day. And on the one hand, I always, for Veterans Day, I always like to thank the veterans and those who serve in the armed forces for their honor and their integrity, for their character, because it's that honor, integrity, the character of those men and women that makes the American armed forces what it is historically. And that's a fine thing to do on Veterans Day. But on Veterans Day, sometimes what we have to do is we have to remember some really horrible things that happened in the past. Because, again, if we don't, we leave the people behind who suffered through that uh, through those things. And we leave the we leave the families behind, the families that had to deal with the, the fallout from it. And I don't like leaving people behind. You know, some Americans do enjoy leaving people behind. They actually revel in it, it seems, leaving people behind. Not not all Americans, probably not you, because, again, the people who listen to this podcast are of a particular kind of character. You know, your fly-by-night TLDR, uh, Fantasyland, Silver Spoon, living in the suburbs type is not going to listen to this podcast most of the time. What's going to happen is, is there's, um, th those people are going to maybe cruise into the podcast for about five minutes, get agitated, and leave. Or get bored and leave because, again, TLDR. So I'm not saying that this is you for certain, but I am saying it is a lot of Americans. You know, they, they like leaving people behind in history. They like leaving American soldiers and service members behind. They like to leave the grieving families behind. They like to leave a lot of people who have suffered the various stupid mistakes that this country has made behind. However, I do not. I do not like to leave those people behind. Those lives matter. Now, how does, this, how does this relate to the Founding Fathers? The Founding Fathers did this weird thing a long time ago. They wrote this constitution. Strange document. They also said a lot of things. They said a lot of things uh, about what this country ought to focus on. And this is the study of the Founding Fathers, after all, and we probably should focus somewhat or, you know, think about what the Founding Fathers told us to focus on in order to, you know, understand where it was that they were coming from, why they said the things that they said, and compare and contrast how we're living today compared to, you know, how they suggested that we actually conduct our affairs. And I will give you an example of this at the outset that is actually applicable to what we're going to be talking about here in a few minutes. This comes from George Washington and his uh, farewell address, quote, Europe has a set of primary interests, which to us have none or very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the cause of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her policies or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendship or enmities, end quote. Continuing on, 
Quote, Why forego the advantages of so peculiar a situation? Why quit our own stand upon foreign ground? Why, by interweaving our destiny with that of any part of Europe, entangle our peace and prosperity in the toils of European ambition, rivalship, interest, humor, or caprice, end quote. What the crap is George Washington talking about? He's basically stay the heck out of Europe, basically is what he's articulating here. You know, it becomes more clear as he goes on, quote, It is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world, end quote. Stay out of Europe. Stay out of foreign affairs. Don't engage in permanent alliances or permanent treaties. Now, do I agree with General Washington here 100% literally taking what he said? And the answer to that question is no, I do not. The situation has changed somewhat. Now, here's what I do. I take what General Washington said, and I try to—I tr I, I think what he was saying was well-intentioned, and I think he was right— based on the time period that he was talking about. And I think this is a good principle, generally speaking. What I do is I take that principle, I then overlay it onto what we're dealing with today, and I try to adhere to it to the extent possible given the circumstances that we have in front of us. So do I agree with his policy generally? Absolutely, I do. Do I agree with it specifically in our time in our present circumstance? Not exactly, no. I can el I'll elaborate on that later when I really get to talking about George Washington and what he was thinking here. But for the time being, for this episode, this is the purpose of this episode is not to get into this statement exactly. I just wanted to make a I just wanted to present that to you so you know why I'm talking about what I'm about ready to talk about. It's because some people are going to say, this has nothing to do with the Founding Fathers, you're way off script, you're getting way off base, I didn't tune into this podcast to listen to this crap, why are you talking about this? I don't understand. Well, now you should. There's going to be two sections of this episode. The first section is going to talk about men whose lives were thrown away by their government. You remember what I started you know, talking about some episodes ago about how governments are oftentimes want to murder their own people. This is not too far removed from that statement, what we're going to talk about today. And some people may still have an aversion to that statement. Some people may rebel. This is, again, the, the Fantasyland, Disney World, Silver Spoon, Live in Suburbia type crowd is not going to appreciate that statement. They're not going to understand it. It's going to make them run screaming away from this podcast with their hands in the air, you know, shouting that, you know, Roman is a crazy man, this podcast is horrible kind of thing. But that's just, re but it's just reality. You know, if you don't believe me that governments are want to murder their own people, I want you to I want you to just leave this podcast, you know, after I get done saying what I'm about ready to say, and I want you to build up a healthy collection of really great history books about every civilization that ever existed from the dawn of man until today. I want you to start reading and don't stop until you understand what I'm saying. Because it's true. I don't make this stuff up. That's the that's basically, you know, wisdom from the sum total of my experience reading history from the time I was in single digits until today. And newsflash, I am, I am not in my 20s anymore. I am not in my 30s anymore. I'm beyond that. I've been around quite a while. So I've been at this a long time. Safe to say I might actually know what I'm talking about. And the reason why I'm prefacing this episode with so much at the front end before I really get into it is because, again, some people are going to have a hard time with this episode. Maybe not you, but like I said, occasionally we get new folks in here to this, uh, this podcast, and they have, they have trouble understanding where I'm coming from. And I, under, I understand that, and I respect that, on the one hand. I don't have a lot of respect for the Disneyland, Fantasyland crowd, to be honest with you. I really don't. But for honest, intelligent people who don't understand this stuff yet, who haven't really been students of history for a good long time, and are wanting to learn, I, I definitely understand why they might have an aversion to this episode on the one hand, or they might misunderstand it, or they might not understand where I'm coming from, and how this relates to the Founding Fathers, because they haven't done this for very long. They haven't studied this material for very long. So I'm trying to I'm trying to help those people, the ones that are actually uh, intellectually curious, not the Disneyland crowd. I'm not trying to help them because you can't help those people. Only they can help themselves. But believe me, you can't. Neither can I. So I just let those folks go. Uh, they'll come back when they're ready. You know the old saying. You know the when when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. It's kind of one of those scenarios. So what am I going to talk about today? World War One. That's where we're going to start off. And yes, it does have something to do with the founding fathers, like I just like I just described. The reason why I read that statement from Washington to you is because where did World War One take place? Largely, I mean, it took place all over the world. Technically, that's why it's called World War One. The Japanese were involved in World War One. A lot of folks don't know that, but they were. They were engaged in combat against Germany's interests over there in Asia. Yes, they were. They were a friend of the uh, the Western powers, so to speak. The uh, you know the Britain, France, the United States of the world. So we have ourselves a European conflict. And we have Washington's statements about European conflict. And again, 
Like I said, I don't agree with General Washington all of the time as far as what he was describing there, but some of the time I definitely do, and World War I would be one of those circumstances where we had absolutely no interest in that whatsoever, at least not sufficient enough to commit troops to that war. And I'm going to tell you what governments do when, they're, when, they, when they decide to go do something stupid, and I'm going to tell you how they get people killed needlessly, how they throw lives away. Governments do this on a semi-regular basis. This might encourage you to not put so much faith in government, perhaps, but instead put faith in principles, things that guide us throughout the ages, be it the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc. Things of that nature, and the, the people who wrote it, and the people who inspired it, be it John Adams, Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, etc. So... I hope you're gonna. I hope you're going to continue on with me on this episode, and so we can we can uh, again descend into the darkness and understand exactly what it is the founding fathers have to do with World War One, and also the next the second topic that we're going to talk about today has to do with providing for the common defense, as articulated in the Constitution of the United States, which is related to World War One in some some way. But these these two things are really I'm trying I'm trying I'm telling you two separate stories to draw together uh, a theme here, and and but the. The actual point of both uh, both stories is going to be slightly different. Uh, it's not going to be a unified story necessarily. So let's get into the first discussion that we're going to have about World War One in Europe and the United States entangling itself in European affairs, much to George Washington and my chagrin. Let's do that right now. Because believe it or not, the Founding Fathers and what they wrote, what they did, what they said, the things that they designed for this country, it ties into actually a lot of what goes on day to day in this uh, in this world, the world that the United States is involved in. So I'm going to read to you from a book, and at the end of this uh, section, I will tell you what the book is, I will tell you the author of the book, and I will encourage you to go buy this book. This is a book that um, I would recommend that you have in your personal library. And actually, that, that leads me to a statement I wanted to make. I mentioned, uh, you know, a few episodes back about, you know, it was in my Veterans Day episode. And I, I figure since this is really a continuation of that episode, I will I will address a certain group of folks that are pot potentially participants on the study group here. You know, if you're between the ages of 15 and 25, you know, there's a lot of things that um, you can do with your life in that time period. I mentioned in a previous episode, acquiring wisdom is probably the single most important thing that you can do. You want to kind of relegate happiness and finding happiness to the back burner. And you want to you want to find wisdom because that's what's going to get you through life and and it's going to prepare you to be the kind of person that you need to be to handle the challenges that you're going to face. And one of the things that you want to probably do within that time period is begin acquiring a personal library of books. This is something that the founding fathers did. John Adams was notorious. I actually I believe I read a letter where he talked about his accumulation of a library of books, and it was uh, very expensive to him to actually do that. It was, books were not cheap back then. It's a lot easier now to acquire books than it was back then. And we kind of take it for granted, and we shouldn't. It's very important. And this book uh, that I'm gonna that I'm gonna cite at the end of this section is going to be one of those books I would recommend to you if you're between the ages of 15 and 25. You know, and my my statements about that, you know, you know, those folks between the ages of 15 and 25 pertain largely to uh, to boys and men, uh, not so much to, to women. Not that they shouldn't acquire wisdom, but there seems to be a bigger problem in this country uh, of boys and men acquiring wisdom and being being taught these things. It, it seems to be kind of uh, like 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 the history department on the back burner of society. And I, frankly speaking, I can't figure out why, because it's uh, crucially important that men in this country uh, continue this, gather this wisdom and, and continue it forward uh, for the founding fathers and for others. So just, uh, just FYI, there's a suggestion, no extra charge for that. So I'm going to read you an excerpt from this book that's going to lay the, lay the stage for what we're going to talk about. Quote, November 11th, 1918, the final hours pulsate with tension at every man in the trenches hopes to escape the melancholy distinction of being the last to die in World War I. The Allied generals knew the fighting would end precisely at 11 a.m. Yet, in the final hours, they flung men against an already beaten Germany. The result? 11,000 casualties suffered. More than during the D-Day invasion of Normandy. Why? Allied commanders wanted to punish the enemy to the very last moment, and career officers saw a fast-fading chance for glory and promotion, end quote. I'll read that last part to you again so we can let that sink in. Quote, 11,000 casualties suffered, more than during the D-Day invasion of Normandy. Why? Allied commanders wanted to punish the enemy to the very last moment, and career officers saw a fast-fading chance for glory and promotion, end quote. Glory and promotion. 11,000 casualties in a single day. 
in the final hours of World War I against uh, what was described as an already beaten Germany. Why in the world would you do something like that? I mean, you want to punish the enemy. The, the Versailles Treaty already had that handled, by the way. But they wanted to punish the enemy, Germany in this case, with the blood and the bodies of American soldiers, and French soldiers, and British soldiers. You see, the officers didn't give a crap about the men under their command. And by extension, neither did the federal government of the United States of America give a crap about the lives of those men. They didn't give a crap. They didn't matter. And when we don't tell these stories, when we don't teach this stuff in history class and school, which we don't, by the way, we communicate that we don't care. We don't care about the lives of those men. Well, I know that the people on this study group are different, which is why you're still listening to this episode. Let's continue. Let's read another excerpt from this book. Quote, Father Francis Duffy, recovering from exhaustion at the aid station, was puzzled by his emotions at the end. I had always believed that the news of victory and peace would fill me with surging feelings of delight, the chaplain of the Fighting 69th recalled. But it was just the contrary. I could think of nothing except the fine lads who had come out with us to this war and who are not alive to enjoy the triumph. All day I had a lonely and aching heart. It would be a lesser thing to have killed myself than to go back to the mothers of the dead who would never more return. On sailing for France, the regimental roster had shown 3,500 men. Duffy calculated that, the end, that at the end, only some 600 of the original contingent had survived. End quote. I'll read that one most important section to you again. Quote, All day I had a lonely and aching heart. It would be a lesser thing to have killed myself than to go back to the mothers of the dead who would never more return. End quote. Sometimes we forget that. Just how horrible these wars really are. Continuing on, quote, Throughout four years of war, casualties on both sides on the Western Front averaged 2,250 dead and almost 5,000 wounded every day. Had Marshal Foch accepted Matthias Erzenberg's plea to stop the fighting on November 8th while negotiations were underway, likely 6,750 lives would have been spared and nearly 15,000 maimed, crippled, burned, blinded, and otherwise injured men would instead have gone home whole. All this sacrifice was made over scraps of land that the Germans under the armistice were compelled to surrender within two weeks. End quote. So by treaty, the Germans were set to leave this territory anyway. But instead, instead, these officers in the military, on the uh, side of the British, the French, and the Americans, got 6,750 men killed. Men killed. And further, quote, nearly 15,000 maimed, crippled, burned, blinded, and otherwise injured men, end quote. Now, there were over 100,000 American soldiers killed during World War I, just to put that in perspective for you. Now, in one particular battle, I will read to you an excerpt from this book. Quote, In the American Expeditionary Forces, the 26,000 men killed in the Meuse-Argonne represented the greatest loss in a single battle to that point in the nation's history. One of every five West Pointers in action in France were killed. End quote. Well, that's a, that's a heck of a dark chapter in American history. Now, why in the world did we go to war in World War I? Somebody might ask the question because there's a lot because again this stuff doesn't get taught in school so I have to I have to augment the public education system somewhat for all the young folks out there who may be listening to this uh, podcast and joining us on the study group. Some people think it was the sinking of the Lusitania. It was not. A lot of time passed between the sinking of the Lusitania and actually declaring war. It was not the it was not the cause of us declaring war on Germany. It wasn't. It's most closely attributed to something called the Zimmerman telegram. Uh, allegedly, and I say allegedly for a reason, allegedly Germany sent a telegram to Mexico, uh, you know, kind of encouraging them to declare war on the United States and join Germany in some kind of an enterprise in that regard. This was done fairly late in the game, late in the war for the most part, and that was our so-called impetus for actually declaring war on Germany. Now, if that is our rubric for declaring war on a country, a telegram of nefarious intent issued to a country that really posed no threat whatsoever to the United States of America, I think we probably would have declared war on China a long time ago. But we haven't yet. Yeah, despite them declaring war on us back in the 1950s, I talked about that before. So what in the world were we doing declaring war on Germany over a telegram? A telegram? A piece of paper? I don't know. Except, again, that the United States government was bored on a Tuesday afternoon and had nothing better to do. I don't know if it happened on Tuesday or not. It might have been Friday. Who knows? Uh, I never did look up what day it was uh, that they the war was declared. 
I don't really, I don't, frankly speaking, I don't really care because it doesn't really matter. You can look it up. But whatever day it was, you know, the government was bored that afternoon, had nothing better to do, so they declared war. Fantastic. Over 100,000 Americans killed, including the most number killed in a single battle in the nation's history, according to this uh, text that I am reading. But more specifically, the purpose of my, my statement here, the last day of the war, the last day of the war, American officers ordered American soldiers into combat to fight over land that Germany was going to have to give up anyway under treaty. And they did it no, for no reason other than their own glory, their own career, and their just blind hatred of the Germans. Which is fine if you have hatred of the Germans, I suppose, on the one hand, get, considering what Germany did. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Germany is, is something that shouldn't be attacked in this war. Germany declared war on France. This was a legitimate war for France to fight, and perhaps for Britain to fight. But America had absolutely no business fighting in this war. Germany did not declare war on the United States. It didn't pose any particular threat to the United States, and that stupid telegram was no more a threat than the empty threats of some lunatic 3,000 miles away. Now, Britain and France were our friends, or at least the friends of a good portion of the country, perhaps. That's fine. You can support your friends. You can send them weapons. You can send them arms. You can provide logistics. You can you can even send soldiers over there to uh, help behind the lines in a non-combatant capacity if you wanted to. But why on earth would you send American troops into that war? But again, more specifically, why would you send American troops into combat on the last day of the war to fight over land the Germans were retreating from a few weeks later under treaty by requirement? They were going to leave. Why in the world would you do that? That's just that many fewer American soldiers that are going to be able to go back to the States to their families, people who are going to die for no reason, families that are going to have to grieve for those soldiers, those men, for, no, for uh, over no reason whatsoever. There's no battle that needed to be won there. There's no fight that needed to be had there. The Germans were going to pack up their crap and leave. So what's the point? This is why Washington said what he said. This is why he said, stay out of it. And I think he would have said, stay out of it to the extent possible. Obviously, in World War II, what choice did we have? Germany declared war on us. We didn't declare war on Germany first. Japan declared war on us first. Germany declared war on us first. What choice did we have? Our back was up against the wall. We had to do it. But in World War I, did we have to do it? Did we have to violate General Washington's request upon leaving office? Did we have to do that? No, we didn't have to do that. Again, the government was bored. That's why we did it. The government was bored. Over 100,000 American men dead because the government got bored. And the, and the American people, some of them, not all of them, but some of the American people thought it would be glorious. Go fight in the glorious war. you think they would have learned their lesson from the Civil War after 700,000 men didn't come back and hundreds of thousands of more came back broken. You think, I mean, good grief, this was, what, 50 years prior and America still hadn't learned the lesson? Some did. Don't get me wrong. There were plenty of people who were against it. Not enough. Why? Because they didn't study history. Because they didn't understand what was actually going on. They were too short-sighted to understand the consequences. To put that kind of trust into the military and into the government, you only do that kind of thing when you really have to. And again, it's strange. In World War I, a telegram, a piece of paper, causes us to get 100,000 Americans killed, including many Americans killed on the last day of the war. For no reason. But you fast forward about 40 years or so, in Korea, China, the communist, uh, the communist government in China actually literally declares war on us. Now, some people might ask, what do you mean by that, Roman? What do you mean China declared war on us? I don't know. You, you, you be the guest. You be, or you be the judge. China marches 300,000 soldiers across the Yalu River in North Korea, and they send those soldiers against United States Marines and Armed Service personnel and get a great many of them killed. Now, where I come from, that's called a, an act of war, but not according to the United States government. A telegram is an act of war, and we, we send 100,000 soldiers over to die. 300,000 soldiers attack the United States Marines in North Korea. No, that's not a declaration of war. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Yet so many people out there in the United States put their faith in this government. Why? Why in the world would you do that? I don't understand. I'm confused. Now, George Washington had a point to make. He, he meant he really intended for us to treat foreign policy very carefully. And to not commit ourselves to anything unless it was really urgent, absolutely necessary. Because I think in some level he knew that this kind of thing was going to happen, a World War I type situation. Keep in mind, I mean, World War I happened only a hundred years after many of the Founding Fathers, you know, died. Just a hundred years or so. 
give or take. I mean, some of them, it was less than 100 years. Wasn't that long afterward. Didn't take long for us to screw this up. Now, why is this important? Why is it? This is why it's important to listen to the Founding Fathers. Because, I mean, if, if the entire country, the United States of America, had listened to George Washington just 100 years prior talking about this kind of thing, they would have looked over there at Europe and said, and they would have looked at that stupid telegram, that piece of paper, and they would have said, there's no real threat here. You want to help Britain, you want to help France, fine. You help them. You can send them all the weapons you want. You can provide logistics support. You can do this, you can do that. You can help. You can do whatever you want. But sending soldiers over there to die and sending them in there on the last day of the war to get massacred for freaking no reason whatsoever? It's absolutely ridiculous. This is why it's important to listen to the Founding Fathers. Are they right all the time? No. Are they right on every single thing to, to, to some minute detail? Absolutely not. But in listening to the Founding Fathers warn us about what we should and should not do, that will, that will provide us some guidance so that we can avoid things such as that. Now, sometimes they can't be avoided. Like I said, World War II, you can't avoid that. Japan starts bombing Pearl Harbor, not a whole lot of avoiding that. But again, strangely, we managed to, we managed to ignore and try to avoid China, you know, attacking us in Korea. I, I don't understand that for the life of me, but okay. Germany declare warring on, war on us in World War II. Can't avoid that. It is what it is. But World War I was a totally different situation. Totally different. And I will, conclude by, I will conclude this section of the podcast by reading this to you. Quote, According to the most conservative estimates during the last day of the war, principally in the six hours after the armistice was signed, all sides on the Western Front suffered 10,944 casualties, of which 2,738 were deaths, more than the average daily casualties throughout the war. Putting these losses into perspective, in the June 6, 1944 D-Day invasion of Normandy, nearly 26 years later, the total losses were reported at 10,000 for all sides. Thus, the total Armistice Day casualties were nearly 10% higher than those on D-Day. There was, however, a vast difference. The men storming the Normandy beaches were fighting for victory. Men dying on Armistice Day were fighting in a war already decided, end quote. Now, some people would say, oh, Roman, this was 100 years ago. It was 100 years ago. It doesn't matter anymore. This is, this is all just uh, history. It's not like history repeats itself, Roman, for Pete's sake. What's wrong with you? Why are you talking about this? Why is this important to talk about on Veterans Day, especially Veterans Day? Of course, it's just past Veterans Day at this point. It's the end of November when I'm recording this. But frankly speaking, I don't give a crap. It's important to talk about this stuff and remember it all the time. It's important to talk about this because those men's lives matter. And it's always possible that this kind of thing could happen again. It's not out of the realm of possibility. So how do we prevent that unless we know about it, unless we can see it coming a mile down the road? The easiest way to see it coming a mile down the road is to just recognize it. Recognize it when it happens. And some people might be thinking, oh my, is he is a Roman talking about Ukraine? Is that what he's talking? No, that's actually not what I'm talking about. I actually did mention that in passing somewhat uh, a number of episodes ago. Uh, there's, you know, there's, I could talk about that if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. It, it's more current events type stuff, and I try to avoid that to the extent possible because I like to keep, I like to keep this, uh, this podcast grounded in history. So I will be talking about in the next section current events type stuff, but it's, it's really more, uh, it's not specific. Really, it's more of a general theme than, than it is anything specific. And it, do, it does pertain to the Constitution of the United States of America, by the way. But yes, the Founding Fathers did have an opinion about this, about these entanglements in Europe. And like I said, sometimes you can't avoid it. World War II is unavoidable. You can't just stay out of that. I mean, unless you pull a Korea and just ignore that Germany declared war on us, which I suppose you could have done. We could have just ignored that Germany declared war on us and just kind of, you know, play pretend and just uh, just move on with our lives and, and act like it never happened. But, you know, rational people don't do that kind of thing. Irrational people do. But World War I was not a scenario where we had to do this this thing where we send people over there to get shot and killed in combat, especially during the last day of the war. And that point that the author of that book makes about more lives being lost, more casualties specifically, more casualties in the last day of that war than in the Normandy invasion on the first day. That's saying something. Now, what is this book? This book was written by Joseph E. Paris Persico. Joseph E. Persico. It's called The 11th Month, 11th Day, 11th Hour. Armistice Day, 1918, World War I, and its violent climax. I recommend that book. It's, it's a good history of World War I. It's a little bit more comprehensive than just the last day. But the primary point of it, at least my takeaway from it, is that last day and how just absolutely insane it was. This is why we, like I said, this is why we listen to the Founding Fathers, why we should. 
It provides us at least a direction to follow. It, it will not give us the answer on precisely every tiny little situation exactly, but at least it provides a direction. And when somebody from the government shows up and says, hey, we have a piece of paper here that makes us angry. It's a telegram sent by Germany to Mexico. We should declare war and go get 100,000 people killed over this piece of paper. What George Washington said might cause you to go, now wait just a doggone minute. I know that you have this piece of paper in your hand that you really don't like that was allegedly sent by Germany, allegedly, but I don't know if we need to go get 100,000 men killed. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. Because again, history is a backburner subject and has been for a very long time. Because it's not important after all. It has nothing to do with daily life. I mean, history has absolutely nothing to do with daily life in the United States of America. So why study it? It's just a bunch of old crap. It's a bunch of old tired documents written by old people who are no longer around. Who cares, right? History history doesn't apply to us. Well, the people in World War War World War One figured out that it actually did apply to them. Those old warnings from history came back to haunt them. And honestly, how those officers who did that, there wasn't, there was, I believe, a congressional inquiry after the fact, after this war was over, into what exactly happened there, if I recall correctly. But how, how those officers who ordered that and their commanding officers were not tried, uh, for war crimes and, uh, hanged for their crimes is beyond me. Somebody out there is going to be like, oh my gosh, Roman, are you actually suggesting that those officers should have been hanged for their crimes? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, if somebody had died and made me king for a day, the first th for my first order of business would be putting them on trial, and if they're guilty, hang them. But the reason why that is is because I take these things so seriously, and I take the lives of those men who died seriously. It's not a game to me. It's not some fun little exercise and in intellectual discourse to me. It's real. Those men really died. And let us not forget. Let's not forget how they died. Let's not forget why they died. And again, in this case, it was for no reason at all. And let's make sure that never happens again. Shall we? It's how we make sure that at the end of the day, those men didn't die for nothing, as it may seem. At least we can learn from it. Now, that concludes the first section of this, uh, this episode. I wanted to talk about that because, like I said, you know, it's on Veterans Day, it's really great to thank the veterans for their honor, their integrity, and their character that they, uh, they, they carry with them everywhere they go, and that makes the United States Armed Forces what it is. But we also have to remember those hard lessons, you know, from history, those hard lessons that just people don't want to talk about because it's really hard to talk about, and it's really hard to ferret this information out. Public school doesn't want to talk about it either. They're too busy talking about other things. Some of it, you know, valuable, and some of it just crap. Because seriously, I mean, when, when, I mean, did you, like, I mean, those, those folks who are here on the study group, I mean, like, in middle school, high school, did you learn about this? Did you learn about the last day of World War I? Who out there, who out there actually learned about this stuff? Yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, there might have been a few people who did, but the vast majority of people, probably not. It's not a popular subject to talk about. So what do you say we, you know, this next section that we're, that we're going into here, it pertains to the Constitution of the United States and specifically what it says about the executive branch, what its, what its focus is. And I'm going to read to you a section from the Constitution. I'm going to read from, I'm going to read to you some news articles. And just like George Washington's warning from history about getting involved in European affairs, the Constitution is going to tell us that there is something amiss in the land of the United States. There is something wrong here. Something doesn't make sense. If you're listening to the Founding Fathers and the advice that they gave us for how we should conduct our affairs. But yes, keep in mind as I'm reading to you the news articles and the copy of the Constitution in this next section, this all does have very much to pertain to what the Founding Fathers said. You'd be surprised. It ties into a lot of things with these... uh what these men, you know, said to us way back when. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that in the next section, so what do you say we do that right now? All right, are you folks ready? Are you ready? Let's do this thing. So this section is going to be uh, somewhat remotely related to the previous section, but somewhat separate, but in the vein of, you know, Veterans Day and the things that we really need to be cognizant about as it pertains to national defense, because, I mean, what what do the veterans do except national defense? It's kind of their whole their whole thing in life, at least as far as their uh, responsibilities in the military go. So how's the how's the rest of the country doing, especially the politicians? How, how, are, how are they doing as it pertains to, you know, honoring that responsibility? Well, Perhaps not very well, as we're going to read here. So I'm going to read to you from some news articles, and this is just recent stuff. I mean, I could go back and to the 90s and start reading articles way from way back when about how this has been a problem for a really long time. 
And I'm going to read to you from an article here. This is going to be, uh, the source is CBS News, or excuse me, CNBC, CBS, CNBC. Title of the article is, quote, The U.S. and Europe are running out of weapons to send to Ukraine, end quote. My gosh, what a, what a terrible thing, huh? How in the world does that happen? Let's continue. Quote, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg held a special meeting of the alliance's arms directors to discuss ways to refill member nations' weapon stockpiles. But ramping up defense production is no quick or easy feat. End quote. Hmm. Interesting. Let's continue. Quote, in the, in the U.S. weapons industry... The normal production level for artillery rounds for the 155mm howitzer, a long-range heavy artillery weapon currently used in the battlefield of Ukraine, is about 30,000 rounds per year in peacetime. The Ukrainian soldiers fighting invading Russian forces go through that amount in roughly two weeks, end quote. One more time, loud and proud. Quote, In the U.S. weapons industry, the normal production level for artillery rounds for the 155mm howitzer, a long-range heavy artillery weapon currently used on the battlefield of Ukraine, is about 30,000 rounds per year. The Ukrainian soldiers fighting invading Russian forces go through that amount in roughly two weeks, end quote. (laughs) Methinks we have our problem here. Continuing on, quote, that's according to Dave DeRoches, an associate professor and senior military fellow at the U.S. National Defense University, and he's worried. I'm greatly concerned. Unless we have new production, which takes months to ramp up, we're not going to have the ability to supply the Ukrainians, DeRoches told CNBC, end quote. Continuing on, quote, Europe is running low, too. The military stocks of most member states have been, I wouldn't say exhausted, but depleted in a high proportion, end quote. Wow, that's, um, now most people, I I don't know why, I've never been able to figure out why. And I really do feel like this is going to be a lifelong struggle for me. I don't know why people ignore the, these things. I don't know why people ignore stories like this. Because this is communicating something to me and to America's enemies. And it ain't good, okay? You know, most people in the United States may not pay attention to an article like this, and, and they may not care, and the politicians may not care. But there are two people in the world, There, well, there's two groups of people, there's two people... I don't know how to word this. There's two people in the world who do care about this. I'm one of them, and America's enemies are the other. Let us uh, move on to a another article. This one's from Reuters. Title of the article, quote, Lockheed Martin looks to nearly double Javelin missile production, end quote. If you don't know what a Javelin missile is, it's essentially an anti, uh, primarily used as an anti-armor weapon. Very, very good weapon. Very necessary for the defense of the United States, by the way. Very necessary. If we fight in a, what I would call a major conflict with a world power. This is one of those weapons that's very, very necessary. That's why, that's again why we're sending them to Ukraine, by the way. Let's read a little bit of the article. Quote, Weapons maker Lockheed Martin Corporation plans to nearly double production of Javelin missiles, the anti-tank weapon that has helped Ukraine fight Russia's invasion, Chief Executive Officer James Taslett said in an interview on Sunday. The aim is to boost output to 4,000 per year, from 2100 per year currently. Tassel said in an interview with CBS News, the increase will take as long as a couple of years. End quote. Years. Did you hear that? It's going to take a couple of years to ramp up production. Well, I certainly hope that the United States doesn't get into a war in the next couple of years. Or if a war does break out, I hope we can communicate to the, uh, the enemy, uh, whoever it is that we're fighting, to push the pause button for a couple of years and wait for us to ramp up production. You know, just so we don't have to uh, worry about running out of missiles. Let us continue. Next article. This one's from Business Insider. Title of the article, quote, The U.S. military is scrambling to build more ammunition for itself and for Ukraine. But old army paperwork could get in the way, end quote. Well, that doesn't exactly paint a any better picture than the articles we've read previous, does it? Continuing on, let's, uh, let's read a little bit of this article. Quote, problems with disorganization and bureaucracy may hamper the production, the GEO said in a report. The issues come to light as the Pentagon is scrambling to ramp up its production of munitions, end quote. Scrambling! It's scrambling. I mean, that paints a picture of, like, chickens running around with their heads cut off. It's a metaphor. Continuing on, let's read this section of the article. Quote, This could spell trouble as U.S. arms shipments to Ukraine have depleted American military stockpiles and sent the Pentagon scrambling to ramp up production of artillery shells and other munitions. End quote. There's that word again. Scrambling. Oh, my gosh. They keep using it over and over again in this article. That's a third time we've heard that word in this article, isn't it? Yeah. 
That that paints a bleak picture. But I'll read this section of the article, the, the most pertinent section of this article. It's very fascinating. I'll read this one more time. Quote, This could spell trouble as U.S. armed shipments to Ukraine have depleted American military stockpiles and sent the Pentagon scrambling to ramp up production of artillery shells and other munitions. End quote. Are you starting to get worried yet? Because, you know, you know if, you're, if you're not starting to get concerned, like legitimately concerned for the uh, national security of the United States of America, frankly speaking, I don't, know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what's going to get you concerned. Because these are just recent articles. I mean, like I said, I could go back to the 90s with this stuff. I'm not going to because it just take too doggone long and it would take too, too much time to really thread that needle over that length of time. But you're starting to get the, uh, starting to get the picture, hopefully. Let's move on to the next article. We've got two more left. And then once we're through with these articles, I will begin to thread the needle for you and describe to you exactly why this is, uh, why I believe that something is seriously askew here and what exactly it is that's causing all of this. Like, why are we here? Why are these articles a thing right now? Continuing on, this next article is going to come from Blaze Media. Title of the article, quote, Watchdog Report, Defense Department dropped the ball on U.S. air power. Over past decade, only four of 49 aircraft met mission-capable goals, end quote. This is a poorly worded title and a, uh, a poorly worded article, but then again, almost all the articles I found about this were poorly worded. What they mean when they say only four of 49 aircraft, they mean four of 49 aircraft types. Not just 49 single individual aircraft, but 49 aircraft variants or types. Platforms would be another another term for that as well. So only four of 49 aircraft types or platforms or models met mission-capable goals. Four of 49. Good grief. What the heck is going on? That means that of all, all of America's aircraft types, 49 of them apparently... Only four, four, are able to re- to meet mission-capable goals. In other words, military a certain level of military readiness. Other than that, they're not ready. Methinks we have ourselves a problem here. Let's get let's read a little bit of this article. Quote: A new government watchdog report gave a damning review of the United States military's aerial mission capability, indicating that only four of forty-nine aircraft long associated with American air superiority met their annual mission-capable goal in a majority of the years from 2011 to 2021, end quote. So this isn't new, ladies and gentlemen. This has been going on for a long time. This problem has been lingering out there in the ether for a long, long time. Let's continue on. Quote, despite the Department of Defense spending tens of billions of dollars annually for a tactical advantage, the report has highlighted a deficit in the health and readiness of American aircraft fleet at a at time of increased tensions with both Russia and communist China, end quote. Huh. Interesting. But like I said, this has been going on for more than a decade, probably. Certainly at least a decade, according to the article. Continuing on, let's read a little bit more of this. Quote, A total of 26 aircraft failed to meet their annual mission-capable goal in any fiscal year between 2011 and 2021, including the Air Force's A-10, C-17, CV-22, F-15C and D, and F-22, the Army's AH-64D and E, and CH-47F, the Navy's C-130T, C-2A, KC-130T, and MH-60S, and the Marine Corps AH-1Z, F-35B, FAA-18A, AD and UH1Y, end quote. Boy, that's very, uh, very sad. Continuing on, quote, The four aircraft that secured passing grades over the 11 fiscal year period were the Navy's EP-3E Ares II reconnaissance plane, the Air Force's B-2 Spirit Stealth Bomber, the U.S. Air Force's RC-135SW Cobra Ball reconnaissance plane, and the Army's UH-1N Twin Huey helicopter, end quote. Oh, boy, at least we can count on those four aircraft. But something tells me if we fight a major war with a world power, those four aircraft are not going to be what saves us. Just a thought. I mean, may, I'm no, I'm not a military man. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm just making an assumption there. Uh, somebody, you know, if you think I'm wrong about that, leave a review on the podcast and say that, no, Roman, you're absolutely wrong. Those four aircraft are going to be what saves us. Those are going to be the four aircraft that win the war right there. All right. But we're not done yet, ladies and gentlemen. Let's read a slightly different article, but with perhaps... Uh, the same kind of implications, but this is like a force multiplier. As if it wasn't bad enough that we're scrambling for ammunition, our stocks are depleted and European stocks are depleted for military weapons, and uh, very few of our aircraft can meet mission readiness goals. Let's uh, let's go into the next um, sad and pathetic story about uh, the United States uh, national defense. 
This article is going to come from The Hill. Title of the article, quote, Defense contractor Honeywell fined $13 million for sharing documents with China, other countries, end quote. Huh, that's interesting. Defense contractor Honeywell was sharing documents with China and other countries. Now, what documents were they sharing with China? That's fascinating. Continuing on, let's uh, let's read a little bit of this article. This was this ought to be a fascinating exercise into uh, the uh, complete collapse of America's national defense. Quote, Honeywell has agreed to pay the State Department $13 million after it transferred to other countries, including China, unauthorized technical data on the F-35 and F-22 fighter jets, among other weapon systems, end quote. Hmm, that's, uh... That's kind of sad. If you're not familiar with these aircraft, by the way, the F-35 is the trillion-dollar, roughly $120 million per aircraft that's supposed to be the latest and greatest uh, fifth-generation stealth fighters, so on and so forth, that can uh, do everything under the sun. And we spent a lot of money to actually get this thing up and running, and Honeywell just kind of just you know, just gave information to the Chinese, because what the heck, right? The F-22 is our air superiority fighter, fifth-generation, uh, roughly... Uh, you know, a 1990s aircraft, more or less, but still in service and still very valuable. I believe there's still a congressional ban on exporting that aircraft, by the way, the F-22, which makes it different than the F-35. That's how serious this is. There is a there is an export ban on that aircraft, the F-22. You can't export that thing. That's how important that aircraft is. And Honeywell just, eh, let's just give it to China. Okay. Continuing on, let's read uh, the, some of the rest of this article. Quote, Other platforms shared include the FA-18 Hornet fighter jet, C-130 transport aircraft, A-7H Corsair aircraft, A-10 Warthog aircraft, Apache Longbow helicopter, M-1A-1 Abrams tank, the Tomahawk missile, and the F-135, F-414, T-55, and CTS-800 turboshaft engines. End quote. What could possibly go wrong? Now, why am I reading you these articles? Because at this point, I mean, I told you that I was going to thread the needle that this had something to do with the Founding Fathers. What it has to do with is the Constitution of the United States of America and providing for the common defense, because that's in the Constitution of the United States of America in a couple of places. Let me read to you the preamble of the Constitution of the United States of America just to drive this home. Quote, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America, end quote. Did you get that part? I'll read it again. Quote, In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, end quote. Does it sound like we are providing for the common defense? I mean, it sounds like somebody's trying, but they're not really succeeding. Now, don't get me wrong. Somebody might somebody might take offense to this. Oh, my gosh, Roman, how dare you? How dare you, Roman, impugn the integrity of our armed service personnel and their ability to provide for the common defense? You sick son of a... How dare you? You praise the veterans on the one hand and then you chastise them on the other hand. No, I'm not chastising them on the other hand at all. This isn't about the frontline service personnel. This isn't about the people who are in the field. This is about the infrastructure of the national defense outside of the armed service personnel. This is about Congress. This is about the executive branch, which I'm going to get to here in a few minutes. This is about a lot of things, but this is not about them. Somebody's dropping the ball here. Now, riddle me this. If somebody told you, you that we had to, we had to whittle the federal government down to just one responsibility and one responsibility only, what would it be? What would you pick? Because I can tell you what I would pick. If somebody came to me and said, Roman, we have to we have to whittle the federal government down to just one responsibility and one responsibility only, what is it going to be? My response would be national defense. Because if you're not protecting the country, then what's the point? Worst case scenario, the states can build the highways. Worst case scenario, the states can figure out how to deliver mail if they have to. If we have to relegate that to the states, then then that's what we got to do. But national defense, I think that's probably the one thing, just that one thing, if I had to pick that the federal government would be responsible for. Does it sound like we're doing that? Not exactly. Not in my book. How else do you explain all this crap? Because let me tell you what this means. What, 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 why did I read to you articles about, you know, this this article about running out of uh, 155 millimeter howitzer ammunition. We produce 30,000 rounds a year. The Ukrainians are going through that much in two weeks, which means if we went to war, if we had gone to war with Russia, we would be going through at least 30,000 rounds of ammunition every two weeks or more. We would probably go through more because we have more guns than Ukraine does. But we can only produce 30,000 rounds a year in peacetime. 
And it's we're having a hard time ramping up that production. Somebody might say, well, we'll just ramp up production. Remember what I said? I mean, what about the Javelin missiles over here with Lockheed Martin? They said ramping up production from just 4,000, or excuse me, to 4,000 from 2,100 per year is going to take a couple of years. And what did we read about the, the military? It's, it's, it's quote-unquote scrambling to find ammunition. Scrambling, ladies and gentlemen. So what, is, what, what, what are we talking about here? What this means, are you getting it yet? What this means is that if the United States had gone to war or will go to war anytime in the next few months, God forbid, the United States military would have been unable, let me say that again, the United States military would have been completely unable to prosecute a war for any sustained length of time against a major world power, God forbid, two world powers at the same time, like we did in World War II. Think Japan and Germany. This is a freaking problem. And how does this happen? How is it we get so far, far afield from our responsibilities? Good news, I'm going to tell you, because that's what I do. Because nobody else will. Is there anybody else you hear talking about this? these stories, like aggregating them together and telling you a comprehensive vision of what this represents? What's the image that all of these stories aggregated together represent? Is anybody telling you that? Probably not. Because I'm not hearing anybody talk about it, and I keep my ear to the ground. Is it possible that I missed it? Yes, it's possible that I missed it. European stockpiles of weapons depleted, according to one expert in the article. It's not me saying that. It's the people in the article saying that. So you, I mean, if you think they're full of crap, just write them a letter and say, hey, you're full of crap. I don't think they're full of crap, though. Because these aren't the only articles. These are just the ones I selected. There's a multitude of these things out there. U.S. military scrambling to replace depleted ammunition. Scrambling. And that after a relatively, it's a large, but relatively limited conflict in Ukraine. Now, what in the world would happen if we had to fight a bigger war than that? I don't even want to know. Whatever it is, it wouldn't be good. But do I look at this situation and say to myself, wow, the United States, re the, the government really is providing for the common defense as it's ordered to. It's commanded to by the United States Constitution. It's not just requested. It's not an option. The, the federal government is commanded, ordered by the Constitution of the United States of America to provide for the common defense. And it is failing to do that. Failing. Because imagine... Sending soldiers into combat under these circumstances. Aircraft that cannot meet mission-capable goals and a military scrambling to replenish de depleted ammunition. Sending them in with bad equipment and very little ammunition. What happens when you send soldiers in to combat with a, in a situation like that, especially against a world power? What do you think would happen to our soldiers? Now, let's go deeper into the Constitution of the United States of America, ladies and gentlemen, and let me make a fine point here. Article 2 of the Constitution of the United States talks about the executive branch. That would be the office of the President of the United States of America, for those folks overseas who may not know that. And Section 1 of Article 2 talks about how the President is elected, more or less. It's all it talks about. It talks about electors, it talks about Congress's responsibilities, and so on and so forth. It doesn't really talk at all about the executive branch itself. It doesn't do that until Section 2. Now, what does Section 2 say? I'm going to read you the very first line, or part of the very first line, from the Section 2 of Article 2 of the Constitution of the United States. These are the very first words that appear in that section. So this is important. When we're talking about the responsibilities of the executive branch, usually the very first thing that's listed is going to be the most important. And I'm going to read it to you now. Quote, The president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. End quote. That's the first responsibility. It's not second. It's not third, fourth, fifth, sixth. 26th on the list? No. It's number one on the list. Does it... Do, now, Now, living in the United States for the last 30 years, for those of you who are actually alive that long, and if you're younger than that, however long you've been here, does it feel like the responsibility of the president, or let me let me rephrase, the focus of the, the office of the president of the United States, is that to be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy? Because it doesn't feel like it to me. I hear the I hear presidents talk about all kinds of things. And sometimes they talk about the Army and the Navy. Sometimes they talk about being commander-in-chief and the responsibilities therein. But oftentimes they don't. What do I hear them talk about? Answer, everything under the sun. 
You want to know why the military is scrambling to find ammunition? If you want to know why only four of 49 aircraft types in the United States inventory are capable of meeting mission goals, you can look at any number of things and find the answer. You want one of them? Go into your kitchen. Go into your kitchen. You will find one of the reasons why this is in your kitchen. I'm not kidding. When you go into your kitchen, I want you to look real long and hard at your refrigerator and know that that is one of the probably 50,000 reasons why the army is scrambling to find ammunition and nobody seems to be doing anything about it. Now, why, why Roman, whatever do you mean? How in the, what in the world are you talking about? Why you say the refrigerator is the reason why the army is scrambling to find ammunition? Well, I'll tell you why. Did you know that your refrigerator is regulated by the federal government? Yes, it is. Along with a million other things. Walk out to your garage and stare at your car for a few minutes. That's one of the 50,000 reasons why the military is scrambling to find, find ammunition. Now, you might say to yourself, well, the government can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, surely they can provide for the common defense and they can regulate my refrigerator and my car at the same time. Well, apparently not. Because they're doing a real good job of regulating your car and your refrigerator, they're not doing a very good job of regulating ammunition for the United States Armed Forces. And this is what happens when everybody in the United States, well, almost everybody, except for me and you and maybe, you know, maybe a few million of us, but the other 330 million people are focused on just about everything except the national defense. The first responsibility of the president, how many people actually go out and vote for a president of the United States based on their capability with regards to national defense? Probably very few. It's probably a million other things. It's probably cars and education and this, that, and the other thing. Anything but national defense. And that's his first responsibility, according to the Constitution. I don't make this crap up. The Founding Fathers made it up. Again, the first line, the very first line out of Section 2, quote, The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, end quote. This is why we have to listen to the Founding Fathers and what they wrote. Because if we don't, our priorities begin to become something other than what we are supposed to be focused on. If you're not protecting the country, if you're not defending the country from America's enemies, then what is the point of any of it? What's the point of doing anything at that point? I don't know. But God forbid we should get into a major war anytime in the near future. Because it's painfully obvious to me and should be painfully obvious to the country, we have no ability to fight a major conflict. None. Maybe for a few weeks we do. Maybe for a couple of months at best. Beyond that, I really question our ability to fight a major war. World War II, by the way, folks, for those of you who don't know, lasted four years. According to Lockheed Martin, it would have taken half that time, half of the war, to ramp up production of those missiles that they build. Does it sound like we have that kind of time? In a major war, did Ukraine have that kind of time? No, they didn't. Ukraine has to rely on Europe and the United States to supply weapons because they don't have time to ramp up production. They didn't have time. And, okay, so when the United States gets into a major conflict, who's going to, who's going to supply us with weapons? I don't know. Because European stockpiles are depleted. Our supplies are next to depleted, at least in regards to certain types of ammunition that are very necessary. Well, we'll just, we'll just come up with, uh, we'll just come up with new, you know, ammunition for our howitzers, new missiles, and our aircraft will suddenly be ready when they when they haven't been for the last decade. They will suddenly be ready when war breaks out. We'll, so we'll find a way to make it happen. Uh huh. So basically, our national security is, is basically been reduced to cross your fingers and hope for the best. Because the executive office of the federal government is focused on just about everything except this. And again, once again, we might get into this world where somebody says, oh my gosh, Roman, you're being partisan. How dare you? How dare you? I'm not, I'm not singling out a single president. I'm talking about the office of the president. And this is a problem that goes back a long time. I remember the 1990s and watching the military get slowly dismantled. I remember seeing it. And I remember a four-star general talking about it. You think I just make this crap up? Oh, Roman, back in the 90s, the military wasn't wasn't dismantled and taken apart. Oh, my God. Oh, I, it's not really me saying that. That comes from a four-star general. You know, probably easily 80% of the things that I say in my life, I got from somebody else. They're not my ideas and they're not my words. 80%. I just borrow it from other people. I don't make this stuff up. That's what happens when you accumulate wisdom from all of the people who came before you. You end up just repeating what they said. You pick the smartest people in any given category, and you study them, you learn from them for years, for decades, and eventually this, just, this stuff just rolls right off the top of your head. But this bothers me, because again, this, uh, this is a real-world, present-day example of us not listening to the Founding Fathers. 
Now you might say, Roman, what about the Founding Fathers? They didn't like a standing army. I know that. We've talked about that. I don't like a standing army either. But here's the thing about that. This ain't the same world that we lived in 250 years ago. I mean, it's close in some ways, but the world moves much faster. The enemy has the ability to close distance on us a lot faster than they used to. We don't have time to ramp up production over the course of years. There just isn't time for that crap anymore. America is a target. It has been for a very long time. And when you've got a target painted on your back, you have to be ready. Because there's a lot to protect. There's 330 million lives at stake. And the lives of probably many millions more around the world. People who rely on the United States. The stability of the United States. The security that it provides. And some people might say, well, you know, we shouldn't be providing security and safety for other people around the world. Well, yeah. But we've made promises. That's the problem. And you can say, you know, we can break those promises. That's the, you, you, can, you can have that opinion if you want to. And you can, you can disagree with the promises that the United States has made. That's fine. But that doesn't change the fact that we made promises. And, you know, it was General Schwarzkopf from, 19, from the 1991 Gulf War. For those of you who don't know, General Schwarzkopf was basically the supreme commander of coalition forces in the Gulf War. He had roughly, I'm ballparking it, roughly 800,000 soldiers he was responsible for. United States soldiers and soldiers of foreign militaries. He is known to have said uh, a Saudi, or I think it was the Saudi Arabian, oh gosh, I can't remember. It was a, I think it was a general or the defense minister, something or other. But he said, I'm paraphrasing, this is based on memory. The Saudi Arabian official said, this, this comes from General Schwarzkopf. It's a reliable source if ever I heard one. He said of this Saudi Arabian official that he, he, is, he is known to have said, if there is going to be only one superpower in the world, thank God it is the United States of America. A Saudi Arabian official said that. And General Schwarzkopf had this general concept around that, and he articulated it in certain rules that he, uh, he was known to have uh, lived by when he was in the military. When you're placed in command, take charge and do the right thing. Do the right thing. Thing. Really hard to do that if you're scrambling for ammunition when any, when anything when it, when, a, when a single problem shows up. You got one problem that shows up and you're scrambling to find ammunition for the for the for the one military that probably has the greatest responsibility in the world. Not only that, but a constitutional responsibility commanded by the Constitution of the United States, not requested, not presented as optional, but commanded by the Constitution of the United States to provide for the common defense, the number one priority of the executive branch. It's supposed to be. It's not today, but it should be. But we have to listen to this. So we're going to continue our discussions on this podcast about the Founding Fathers and what they wrote about and the things that they said. Because it's when we stop listening. We stop listening to the Constitution. We stop paying attention to what the Constitution commands of the federal government. Stop listening to that, and our priorities get askew. Next thing you know, we've got ourselves a really serious problem on our hands. And we are gambling with the lives of 330 million people. Because everything else is more important besides national security. Everything, according to some people. People don't want to pay attention to World War I and what happened there. Because it doesn't give them the warm and fuzzies. They don't want to listen to a podcast or a historian or a professor or a teacher talk about World War I and the lessons there because it doesn't light up the warm and fuzzies. It doesn't remind them of Disneyland. And people don't want to read the news articles about how the U.S. military is scrambling for ammunition to replace depleted supplies. Threading together a narrative across many news articles that the United States is basically incapable of prosecuting a major war in defense of the nation against a world power. We can't do it, or at the very least, we can't do it well. And we're going to end up sending our soldiers into combat with broken equipment, compromised equipment because some company in the United States decided to just give the information away to China, of all people. And we're going to be we're going to have them running around like chickens with their heads cut off looking for ammunition because we're running out. Is that how we honor the people who sign up to serve in the military? Broken equipment, selling secrets to China, and scrambling for ammunition when they need it? That's not my definition of meeting our responsibilities. If we're going to have a standing army, like we need to have a standing army, I hate that we need the standing army, but we do. But if we're going to have it, you better do it right. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. And I can't think of a responsibility of the federal government more important than that one. The Founding Fathers put it number one for the executive branch in the Constitution for a reason. So let's listen to the Founding Fathers. Let's keep going. 
Let's keep studying what they said because they've got a message for us, ladies and gentlemen. They've got a story that they're trying to tell us. And they're trying to tell us, you know, that, that, that responsibility that we have. What Benjamin Franklin said. What kind of a government do we have? A republic, if you can keep it. Well, one of the ways we keep it is to provide for the common defense. One of the ways we keep it is not sending 100,000 soldiers over to Europe to get killed in a pointless war for the United States. It may not have been a pointless war for France. I get that. It may not have been a pointless war for Britain. I get that. But it was a pointless and unbelievably stupid war for the United States to get involved in. And what happened on the last day of the war of World War I was a despicable event in American history. And everybody should know it, but very few people do, because again, ah, public school, let's just put history on the back burner. We don't really need to give the history department our time and our attention. Those history professors don't deserve our time and our attention, because they're not, eh, they're not useful in society today. They don't teach life skills that people need to know. Really? Really? Life skills? You want to know about life skills? How about the life skills that keep 100,000 Americans alive? How about life skills that keep thousands of people alive on the last day of World War I? If somebody would have just cracked open a history book and pulled their head out of their rear end, maybe that wouldn't have happened. That's the consequence of not studying history. That's the consequence of not listening to the Founding Fathers right there. I've got a pile of dead bodies for you that show you that this is serious. And again, I hate to be so blunt. Somebody's going to object. Oh my gosh, Roman, would you stop talking about the piles of dead bodies? How else is anybody going to take this seriously? What, do you want me to sugarcoat this? This is the real world, and this is real history. This isn't the fake history podcast. This isn't the we'll sugarcoat history to make you feel better podcast. That's not what I do here. That's why this will always be a small-time podcast that very few people ever listen to. Because the truth hurts. Reality hurts. But somebody has to pay attention for it. Somebody has to take responsibility for it. Somebody has to be the adult in the room. I decided a long time ago that I wanted to be an adult in the room. A grown man. And you people who listen to this podcast, thank goodness you are out there. You have decided to be a grown man or a grown woman. Thank goodness for you. Because without you, I would really worry for the future of this country. But together we're going to study the Founding Fathers and we're going to get the word out there. That this history is still important. There's still something to be learned here. It is valuable information. So I hope you found this particular episode of the podcast enlightening in some particular kind of way. Maybe you learned something that you didn't know before, in which case I accomplished my goal. I mean, any podcast you listen to where you learn something of substance that you didn't know before, and you can use that in your life to inform the people around you, to inform your friends, family, children, associates, that's a good thing. So I hope you folks will join me on the next episode of the podcast. We're going to probably be back into the letters next time. And I do look forward to that. We're going to be reading the words right off the page from the Founding Fathers. We did that today, actually, too. I read you some George Washington. And, of course, we read the Constitution of the United States of America, a part of it, uh, which is directly from the mind of the Founding Fathers, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, of course, have a... a, a multiple feature-length episodes in the future on the, the full length, width, and breadth of the Constitution, including every single amendment that has been uh, ratified by the United States. This is a, the, These are very good discussions, I think, and very important discussions for a society to have. Uh, and all too often, the United States fails miserably at having these discussions because it's just so much other crap that fills the air. So for that reason, amongst many others, I thank you so very, very much for giving this material your time and attention. Uh, I don't know if the Founding Fathers would agree with my message today. You know, I'm pretty sure General Washington would agree with my message on World War I, given what he said, but who knows? I can't say that precisely. And as far as providing for the common defense, of course the Founding Fathers believed you should provide for the common defense, but would they agree with exactly my opinions and ideas around that? I don't know. But what I do know is, is they would appreciate that you're at least giving this material your time and attention. I know that because they wrote about it. They wrote about people forgetting the revolution. We talked about that. They wrote about needing to keep the papers together. John Jay wrote about that, keeping the papers together so that people could study them in the future. So I know to an absolute certainty beyond a reasonable doubt that the Founding Fathers would thank you for giving this material your time and attention. Thank you so very much. You are the reason why the Founding Fathers have a voice in the 21st century. So I will see you folks on the next episode. And with all of that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.